Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hi there. My name is Rachel Lipstein, and I'm a research assistant at the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm here in the studio today with energy and environmental journalist Kate Galbraith. Kate has written for the Texas Tribune, the New York Times, and The Economist. She's the co-author of the recently released The Great Texas Wind Rush, a book about how the oil and gas state won the race to wind power. Kate, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, let's dive right in. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, And first, how did you find your way into environmental journalism? Huh, that's a funny question. It's been sort of a a long road. I actually started out uh, when I was an undergrad in college writing for Travel Guides, the Let's Go Travel Guide series. If uh, anyone remembers those. And then when I graduated, couldn't do that, did Lonely Planet um, Travel Guides. That's for grown-ups, I guess. And then, But I wanted to do something more substantive. And one way and another, I landed in Texas in uh, 2006 as the, uh, 2005 as the Southwest correspondent for The Economist. And I sort of had really never set foot in Texas before, apart from the uh, Houston airport, where I do remember a guy in a cowboy hat. And then one of my first stories was, whoa, Texas is passing California in wind power. And so that that story really just stuck with me. And I thought, wow, this this green energy thing is really, really interesting. And um, I've had a a couple different uh, jobs since then, but I've need to cover green energy and found it very fascinating. Wow, that is fascinating. How, how did you land as the Southwest correspondent without having previously gone there before or spent much uh, time? Yeah, I, I worked in London for The Economist uh, for five or six years, sort of in the early early 2000s, and then I asked them, could I please go home? By home, <laughs> I meant the United States, and they were like, okay, go to Texas. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I went to Texas. That's great. And you recently just made a big transition, right, from several years reporting on energy and environmental issues in Texas to a new landscape. How does it feel to have made the move to California? It was very, um, you know, California is a wonderful state, but I I definitely miss Texas journalism. I mean, Texas is definitely, I think, the number one place to be a journalist because the stuff that happens there is just sort of big it's sometimes a little weird, and it's it's tremendously overlooked by the national press. Yeah, well, I'm sure they'd be happy to hear you say that. Is there a set of environmental concerns that you find unique to each state, or is the adaptation from, from reporting state to state more subtle, if there's one at all? Yeah, well, the entire western United States is really facing some significant drought, whether you're in Mexico or... California. And so there's certainly the water issues from from state to state. I mean, in in Texas, you look at a map of the United States uh, drought map, and it's just a very uh, red patch over parts of Texas, New Mexico, and so on. And so I think, you know, I covered water quite a lot when I was at the Texas Tribune and, you know, in California, which I'm I'm only a month into, and I, I don't have a a regular gig right now, but, uh, uh, you know, water issues are very significant there. But Texas is also a wonderful state to have covered because, you know, in terms of energy, it's, it's got everything, you know, you're fracking, that's Texas, you know, wind power, 
number one, got some, some biomass and, and all the various kinds of energy really are present in Texas, plus some interesting power grid issues. There are power grids in the country, east, west, and Texas, so that makes it fun. Hmm. And what does the field of environmental journalism look like today in your estimation? Well, honestly, I wish it were a little uh, stronger. I mean, maybe in the sense of just more environmental journalists. Uh, uh, you know, State Impact, the NPR uh, uh, branch, has started a program in, in Texas through energy environment. They have three reporters, and that's been neat. But to my way of thinking, you know, the energy environment field is so huge, particularly with the um, addition in the last uh, however many years of, of climate change, that there's just a huge or more energy environment journalists. But <laughs> that said, I'm sure if you talk to someone who's in education or immigration or anything like that, they'd say pretty much the same thing. Mm. That makes sense. And is there any advice that you would give to aspiring journalists? Well, to my way of thinking, there are stories everywhere you look. I I don't have a lot of, of uh, sort of understanding of, of reporters who kind of can't find stories. To me, that's really the, the most fun part of journalism is just getting out, talking to people, getting a little tip here and there, or hearing something out of the corner of your ear and sort of chasing after that story. And I think there's there's so much to do. And one other thing I really tried to do at the Texas Tribune, uh, not always successfully, was to avoid redundancy. I, I really felt like if the Associated Press did a great story on you know, how much oil and gas Texas was producing or X city running out of water, then I should go on and do do a different story because I wanted to really add to the general body of body of knowledge. And I, there's just so much out there and so many great stories. Every town has a story hmm. that I think there's it's just a really rich area. Were there any particular standout stories that you remember really enjoying the reporting you did for it? Oh, I always enjoyed doing uh, drought stories. I enjoyed going up to the Texas Panhandle, which is this very remote, also windy, uh, we'll get into that later, part of of Texas. And, you know, they've got real water issues with the Ogallala Aquifer declining. And, you know, I also, I did this really fun feature up there. I found some, uh, unrelated to water, but I found some guys who are called windmillers who fix the old water uh, windmills, those kind of whirly gigs that help settle the western plains, and they still, you know, ride around in their pickup trucks, you know, horse and, they did horse and buggy 100 years ago, now it's pickup trucks, and they, they actually just go up on these windmills and fix them, and, you know, the stories they tell and, and how their windmill business is being impacted by the addition of solar panels is all really, really interesting. Wow, yeah. Well, you've written for a number of publications, including magazines and newspapers. And are you conscious of the bent of your readership as you're reporting and writing stories? And does this influence how you decide to tell a story at all? Well, I'm always conscious of what my readers are probably interested in, and I'm conscious of what I think they ought to know. So it's a balancing act, like anywhere in journalism. I mean, for example, at the Texas Tribune, I notice that stories about X or Y town, you know, potentially running out of water is always of, of huge interest. 
Um, that would go up a most viewed list, as would stories about about fracking and fracking issues. But I can't just towns running out of water and fracking, although those are two areas. There's there's so much more to report. Um, you know, sort of uh, chemical plant issues, factory issues, um, et cetera, that, that doesn't quite garner the attention. And so you, it, it's a balancing act as, as in all journalism. Well, in the notes section of your book, you indicate that a great mass of the reported material came from work you and co-author Asher Price had already done. Did at some point the two of you reach a critical mass of wind power reportage to say, I think there's a book here? Or did it come from that initial story hearing about Texas surpassing California in, in wind power? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, basically, in 2006, I went out to West Texas, uh, and there was to do the story about Texas being about to pass California in wind power, and I visited with a wind farm in middle nowhere, et cetera, et cetera, and I just found it a fascinating story in that kind of never left me. I thought, wow, huh, the oil and gas state is doing wind power. And then I, I went to work in New York for a year and a half. I, I worked for the New York Times. And you know, while I was in New York, I, I still had this idea, but I knew that as a very junior reporter at the Times, there was no way I was going to get time off to, to go to Texas to do a book. And I reached out to Asher Price, my, my co-author, who I uh, know from often journalism circles. And he was is up for it, and so we we pursued the book from there. And of course, it was wind power is always a good subject to report on, and so there were plenty of stories to kind of go along with the deeper work we were doing. Plenty of daily stories. Yeah. Well, and if you could write another book right now, and I'm sure you're probably not thinking about that just yet, but. What's another research interest, or what? Uh, what's an ideal sort of story to cover for you next? Wow, what a question! Um, <laughs> I I have actually two very different uh, sort of book ideas. One one of which is actually uh, this is the more relevant one, so I'll, I'll tell you about it. It's you know I've been reporting on environmental issues for the past five years. You know, big issues a day: fracking, uh, water, renewable energy climate change, et cetera. And so I'd love to write a book theoretically on what I actually think about these issues, you know, what are the real issues with fracking um, and, you know, interlace it with some of the funny stories that I've encountered along my way of being a journalist, you know, so whether that will actually, you know, because as a journalist, one is an objective uh, reporter, but I used to work for The Economist. I haven't fully you know, I've got opinions. I just uh, uh, <laughs> suppress them myself. But at some point, I'd like to let some of that opinion and analysis out in one way or another. That sounds great. Well, thank you very much, Kate, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Starting his run for president against Al Gore. Uh, also, in, in the mid-2000s, the state of Texas decided to and billions of dollars building out transmission lines to windy sites. And those costs are, I'm like to say, quote, socialized among Texas ratepayers, meaning that every Texan is going to be paying for those power lines, which you know are about $7 billion now and reach a cost of you know, $300 for uh, roughly for every Texan. Um, I mean, that's a huge amount of money. And, you know, it's... Uh, 
every Texan is going to be paying for it. And, you know, also the federal tax credit really helped when get going. And, and then you have the rise of the, the Tea Party in uh, uh, maybe four, four or so years ago. And I think some of those policies, you know, that made a conservative state even more conservative. And so I think some of those policies certainly wouldn't be possible now if you started from, <laughs> from scratch. And, indeed, there have been some efforts to reduce incentives for WIN that haven't been fully successful. WIN now has its, its own uh, kind of lobby. Folks in rural areas like it. And so it is, it is sort of funny, a funny contradiction that I think is partly explained by changing times. And there are some obvious connections between wind, water, oil, fracking, and natural gas. Um, but what are what are some connections that are not necessarily obvious, especially to those of us without expertise in the energy markets? I know that's a big question. But. Well, I think one interesting thing that I've seen is that the renewable energy people, meaning wind, meaning the solar photovoltaic panels haven't focused as much as I would have thought on the idea that, you know, wind power and the panels don't use any water. I mean, water's a huge issue um, in the state of Texas, and I think you'll see that going forward, but that's a connection that a lot of people don't think about. I mean, this is emissions-free electricity. It's also uh, water-free electricity, and, and that is a bonus point. But yeah, sure, there are other, other funny confluences, like, you know, and um, uh, much earlier days, you had uh, sort of urban uh, wind turbines in occasional areas, you know, working to pump oil, you know, and uh, windmills, just as windmills normally pumped water, they thought, well, maybe we should try pumping oil. Um, I don't think that worked out particularly well. But, right, all of these different kinds of energy uh, kind of coincide in, in various ways and really made Texas energy state and interested in all kinds of energy, which I think is the basic attitude that made wind power possible. Yeah. Well, where do you think wind policy is headed today, and what are some challenges that you see emerging? Well, within the state of Texas, they're still building out these lines that are going to be a huge boon to wind power. Those lines, uh, again, $7 million of lines are due to be finished by the end of this year, and that will mean that some of the windiest part of Texas, uh, like the Panhandle, uh, uh, area um, where T. Boone Pickens had wanted to build this wind farm, uh, uh, will be more accessible to wind. And so I think you'll see some continued wind build out. Um, one person uh, told me expect maybe, you know, 20% or so more wind uh, uh, over the next couple of years. And of course, you're helped by the uh, last minute extension of a federal tax credit uh, that was due to expire end of last year and got renewed early this year. And so uh, there's more wind coming, but the wind industry does have to uh, potentially figure out how to deal with the either expiration or the ratcheting down of uh, their federal tax credit, depending on what Congress decides to do at the end of this year. And do you think wind has more potential for filling in gaps in the, the energy pie in Texas than, say, solar? Wind is a little tricky because 
the wind that's been put in in West Texas isn't necessarily very well matched to the needs of the power grid. The, you know, it's really, really hot in Texas. Breaking is like 100 degrees there now, and that means that air conditioners are on full blast in the afternoons. And so, but but that's also when the West Texas winds die down. And you know, as as they built out these wind farms, they've kind of realized that that that's a significant issue. Solar, of course, would be uh, much better matched to the needs of the, the power grid uh, because it's you know, I mean. When it's hot, it's sunny, and solar panels are producing power. And so, you know, the trouble is solar is a little more expensive, and so they're still yeah, – I, I do think you'll see uh, solar growth, um, you know, how fast, I, I don't know, uh, in Texas, or how I, – I don't think it can grow quite as fast as wind, but it be wrong. Um, you know, on the Texas coast, uh, you do see – you have seen more wind farms going in in recent years, and that's important because the coastal winds uh, are much better matched to the power grid. And so I think there's a lot more attention to, you know, will will the uh, uh, type of power that I'm producing be well matched to the grid? Because you can also uh, make more money um, as an operator by, uh, you know, the real-time prices are much more aligned to the uh, – are, are much higher – at the times when Texas demand, power demand is high. Mm-hmm. And talking a little bit about, well, it's certainly in discussions on water, water rights are a big issue in Texas, and and the, the it's been ruled that and reaffirmed recently that Texans own the groundwater under their property, right? And so I was wondering if uh, it's an issue at all if uh, Texans own the wind over their property and whether that intersects at all with eminent domain issues building wind turbines. Huh, that's a that's an interesting question. I've actually never really heard it raised and you know, I think probably some Texans would be like, Here, take the wind off my property and, <laughs> you know, please have it. It's all yours because I mean the winds are really just can be brutally powerful, um, in some places and they kick up these these dust storms. But you know, I've really never heard that. I, you know, the issues that I, I do hear are, you know, in Texas you can build um, a lot closer to the property line than you might be able to in other states, and you potentially impact uh, your your neighbors with these wind farms. Neighbors aren't aren't always happy, and so there are certain. Uh, but Texas is kind of a low regulation state, and so that's just sort of how it is, and they're always always concerned landowners nearby, but, you know, that's that's the way things are in Texas. Mm. And does Texas, as the the winner in some respects of the great wind rush, have any responsibilities or mandate going forward to lead other states in wind policy? And have they lived up to their numerical superiority? Well, it's interesting. I have the end of the book with... A uh, quote from a fellow, Jim Marston, uh, who uh, uh, heads the Texas Office of the Environmental Defense Fund, and he says, you know, quote, if Texas can do it, hell, anyone can do it. <laughs> yeah, isn't and that I the think, final quote of the book? Yeah, that's the final quote of the book. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great um, And his point was that, I mean, people would have thought that wind power would be kind of normal, maybe coming out of, you know, dippy-dippy California. <laughs> 
but if Texas, which is, you know, seen as this kind of money-centric, practical-minded, uh, unenvironmentalist state can, can do wind power, then it sets, sets an example for other states and kind of gives them confidence. And, and more than confidence, you know, the Texas wind rush essentially made, you know, it, it meant that one state was having a very large-scale demand for wind turbines, which um, uh, will change the economics of industry. And, you know, again, it just sort of uh, uh, shows, it shows the way it demonstrates uh, policies that work for wind, the renewable portfolio standard of, of Texas, the renewable energy mandate signed by Governor Bush and extended by Governor Perry uh, really worked. And that kind of, you know, other states can look, look at Texas and see what works and and what didn't, but yeah, Texas is sort of a sort of a pioneer, and they're still building. Well, that is an inspiring note to end on, I think. And I want to thank you, Kate, for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. It's been fun.